Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with number one New York Times bestselling author Brad Taylor to talk about his newest Pike Logan novel, American Trader, in which Pike Logan and his new bride, Jennifer Cahill, must put their carefree vacation in Australia behind to prevent a military confrontation between China and Taiwan. Brad expertly guides readers on a thrill ride through the world of special ops, cyber ops, and political intrigue, in which Pike Logan must do his best to adhere to the legal and moral rules that govern their conduct in the murky and deadly world they inhabit. Number one New York Times bestselling author John Lescro had this to say about Pike books. Pike ranks right up there with Jason Bourne, Jack Reacher, and Jack Bauer. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, congratulations on the book. We're up to what, 14, 15? What is it? That's, this is book 15. I'm banging away on book 16 right now. Right, good. We may talk about that at the end, but uh, let's stick to book 15 for a second. Uh, I want to get a few uh, you know, terminology questions out of the way. By the way, I really enjoyed reading the book. I piled through it this weekend. It was a fast read. Couldn't put it down. But I want to talk about the acronym that jumped out at me. Um, it's DCOE. DCOE meaning my wife? <laughs> the deputy commander of everything. everything. That's my wife. Exactly. <laughs> tell, tell, tell our listeners what the DCOE is. <laughs> so I, I get to write the books. And uh, I mean, we both had full-time jobs. I was in the military for forever. And yeah. she was a full-time, had a full-time job as well. And then when I started writing, it, it started to consume our life. And uh, writing a book in and of itself is hard. And so I was like, I can't do the website. I can't do social media. I can't deal with the publicist. I can't do all this stuff. 
And um, so she ended up starting to do it. And then eventually it overwhelmed her and she left her job. And now she runs everything of my life except for the writing. I love that. The deputy commander of everything. So she's your, she's your commanding officer. Is that right? Basically, yes. When it comes to <laughs> any sort of stuff, for instance, talking to you, she's the one that's dealing with my publicist. It's, <laughs> okay. not, it's not you. That's good. A uh, little shadow world there. Okay. So I also believe she had something to do with uh, you sending Pike Logan to Australia, right? She did. She actually, she's been saying for years, she's an avid scuba diver and uh, she's been saying for years, we've got to set a book in Australia. We've got to set a book in Australia. But they had a, a guy that was uh, elected to parliament. He's a Chinese descent, but he's an Australian citizen, got elected to parliament. And he said, uh, once he got elected, he basically panicked and said, hey, I got funded by China and they're going to kill me if I go to parliament. Well, three days later, they found him dead in a hotel room. And that's a, an absolutely true story. And when I, when I found that, I was like, OK, we can go to Australia. <laughs> there's, there's something going on there. And you worked that into the book. I remember that saying where that where that happened. Uh, okay, well, you know, Pike Pike Logan. Um, as I'm reading about this guy, he he is very confident, of course, and uh, about his missions. But he's also the kind of guy that uh, that moves in a world without uh, many tethers. I mean, there is a there is this operational platform there, but he doesn't seem to want to necessarily abide by it, except to give lip service to it. Uh, that's not much. That's not the same as the real world, right? No, not at all. Well, actually, Pike actually does a pretty good job. I mean, I know what the real world is from my background. And so I specifically created the Oversight Council there, what you were talking about, the operational right. platform, because I knew that uh, there's no way there'd be a unit like this that just could run amok without some kind of oversight. Yeah. And so he's continually fighting the oversight. But nine times out of 10, if they pull the oversight away, he then questions it and says, wait a minute, you're the ones that's supposed to tell me no. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fun that way. Well, you know, you're writing fiction, so you got to have a little license there, right? You got to go yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a word that kept showing up in the book as I'm reading it, and I thought, do they really talk like this? Because there's a lot going on. Bad guys are surrounding them. Things are happening. Guns are going off. Explosions. And over the comms, they're saying, "Do you want me to interdict? Yeah. Shall I shall I interdict?" And so I'm thinking, interdict, interdict, interdict. Well, that just means stop, prohibit interfere with or something why don't they say that instead of interdict uh it mainly because it actually the the comms i use in the radio is exactly what we used to use and there's that's a real term okay so interdict is is a, a polite way of saying <laughs> when you're going to interdict somebody it doesn't mean you're going to kill them it just means you're going to prevent them from doing what they want right. to do right so the other term of that would be do you want me to destroy them and then yeah. you just go kill yeah. them yeah yeah all right another term uh, Ronin, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. R-O-N-I-N. Yeah. Is that, is that a real thing? That, well, Ronin's were that's from Japan. And I used it because it's kind of an insult to uh, Taiwanese because Japan occupied China in World War II and all that kind of stuff. And a Ronin is a, a samurai who lost his master. And if you lose your master, you're the worst thing ever. Your whole purpose in life is to serve the master. And if your master got killed, then you were banished and you became a Ronin. But you still had all the same skills. You still were a samurai at heart. But you just had no master. Yeah, and you had one character, um, you know, who worked for the Taiwanese uh, intelligence service. I don't remember what you called him, but uh, anyway, he got sort of pushed into that category, right? And yeah. uh, was sort of a free agent, almost a Jason Bourne type, right? Yeah, he actually uh, that's a that's a true person. Uh, he doesn't work for the NBS, the the, the intelligence service for Taiwan. Um, but when I went to do my research in Taiwan, I was. You know, you always ask, does anybody know anybody in Taiwan? And my brother actually knew this guy. 
And it turns out he's kind of a, a, an important figure in Taiwan. Mm. And so he led me around everywhere, showed me all the temples and how this works and how that works, what the culture is, all, everything. And uh, it, it was so helpful to my research that I named the character after him. That's great. A couple other terms that show up in the book. Uh, we've got deep fakes and we've got uh, oh, yeah. stargazer. Let's talk yeah. about those and whether those are uh, real life situations too. Yeah, deep fakes definitely are. So deep fakes came out um, like, believe it or not, most of American culture came out of the porn industry. So when you, when you watch uh, uh, pay-per-view boxing, pay-per-view boxing was invented by the porn industry because they wanted to make money on the internet. So they determined how to do the tr cash transactions and all that, and you got pay-per-view. Um, deepfakes came out the same way. So people were like, I'm going to monetize this. If somebody wants to see you know, Scarlett Johansson having sex with somebody, I'm going to make her look like the person on the screen look like Scarlett Johansson. Well, since that time, it's gotten much, much better. I mean, incredibly better uh, to the point where um, you can't tell the difference between the two without getting to the ones and zeros. And so the lie will, if you had a, video of a guy saying in a back room that, uh, you know, I'll take money for this, a politician, I'll take money for this, take money for that. He, uh, and then you put the video out, people will believe it. And he's like, that's not me. That's not me. I mean, if you look at deep fakes, uh, in the earlier days, everybody's seen the movie Forrest Gump. Hmm. You remember every scene that Forrest Gump was with <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, he's yeah. with Kennedy. That's, yeah. that's a, a deep fake. Yeah. They created that to make it look like he was in the scene and it looks flawless back then. And now mm -hmm. when you look at it, uh, you can make something out of whole cloth that the lie will travel around the world before the truth will ever catch up with it. That's great. Well, and, and for those um, listeners uh, who don't know you as well as others, uh, you've got a background in this world. You're a 21 year veteran. You're uh, uh, we're in Delta Force. You participated in Operation During Freedom and Operation Iraq Freedom. You also taught uh, at Citadel, a professor of military science. Uh, you've been a consultant for various agencies. Won't go into that. Uh, you probably have to yeah. Kill me, kill me if you told me what you're doing there. So won't go there. But but that leads into this next question terminology here. You used the term gray war. Um, yeah. I thought that was interesting. It kind of it kind of folds into this plot. Talk about that a sec. Yeah, gray war is it's kind of a it's either gray war or hybrid war, depending on what doctrinal guy you're talking to. But it it, it came about uh, after the Cold War when everybody realized that the United States was the 800 pound gorilla, and you cannot go head to head with the United States. And so uh, it really came to prominence in Ukraine, the Crimean Peninsula, when um, the Soviet invasion, the Soviet Union or the Russians invaded there with what they just now called little green men, that they were supposed partisans for Ukraine, but they weren't. And they had an uprising that was supposedly a real uprising, and it wasn't. It was an invasion. And there was no way to prove it one way or the other. Uh, there was this definite gunfight going on. But it was gray war. Now, China's using that, and they've expanded it into the uh, economic sphere. So they want to win. For instance, Taiwan has, I think now they have 16 countries that still have diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. And they want to isolate Taiwan. So they go to each one of these countries, and a lot of them are in the Caribbean. And they go to the country and say, hey, I'm going to give you all this money for your new port. I'm going to give you all this money for your apartment buildings or whatever. And uh, the country takes it. And they say, hey, the only thing we ask in return is break your diplomatic contacts with Taiwan. And they do it. And that's kind of gray war. It's everything short of shooting a gun. Uh, and they use it to great effect. And for as an example, um, Top Gun's coming out here soon. The next Top Gun. Everybody can't wait to see the next Top Gun. Well, the original Top Gun, he's got his iconic leather jacket on. And he's running around and, and it's got the same jacket. Well, there's a distinct different a new jacket. The Taiwan flag is no longer on the new jacket. 
And that's because they want to sell it to China. And China says, if you have a Taiwan flag in this guy's jacket, we're not showing that movie in China. And so the studios capitulate and say, okay, we'll take the, the uh, flag off. That's gray war. That's using every proponent of power in the dime, diplomatic information, military, economic, and fighting a war with it. Yeah, and, and through this thriller that uh, is very fast-paced, uh, you're also teaching us a little bit about that uh, side of the world. And, uh, you know, we're not every day watching what's going on between China and Taiwan, but I found it interesting that every time they have an election, you know, China runs these war games kind of off yeah. the coast, like it's going to be an invasion, you know, depending on how the how it turns out. What If China's doing this all over the world, they want Taiwan really, really bad. Why is that? They want Taiwan. Well, they first of all, it's, it's a historical thing because Taiwan, for the longest time, up until 1973, we recognize Taiwan as a rightful heir of China. That's the seat of Chinese government. Beijing and the entire swath of land that was actually China was not the rightful heir. And Richard Nixon altered that. Uh, and then Jimmy Carter finally said, we're moving our embassy to Beijing. So China has all along said that sooner or later, we're going to absorb Taiwan. And if they absorb Taiwan, there's, I think it's 80% of the, the uh, trade goes through the South China Sea, uh, sea trade, I should say. And they've started encroaching in the, in the uh, bottom of the South China Sea. They've started taking these islands over and building them up. They're basically rock atolls, and they go in there and just dump a bunch of sand on them and turn them into a real island. And they say, this is our sovereign territory. And the reason they're doing that is because there's uh, international law from you know, way back when, from the 1600s, is you've got 12 nautical miles off your coast, and that's your terrain. Anything past that is international waters. Well, if I find an island that's 14 miles off my coast and build it up, I just got another 12 nautical miles. And so they're trying to own the entire uh, South China Sea. And those, the Spratly Islands, what I'm talking about, are they're disputed by Vietnam, Indonesia, everybody's disputed them. But the, they call it the nine-dash line. They have this nine dashes of islands that go down the bottom of the South China Sea. They said it's their terrain since time immemorial. And they took it to the United Nations. And the United Nations said, no, that's not your terrain. That's illegal against international law. Well, they still believe in it. And I have an anecdote in the book, which is true, that the uh, um, Abominable was an, a Disney picture. It was an uh, animated picture. And they wanted to show it in China. Well, the only way to show it in China is when he's looking at his map to see how to get home, he's looking at a map with a nine-dash line on it that says, this is what China is. And that's more gray war. Yeah, so maybe it's not so much about that little piece of land as Taiwan as it is that whole trade route that they would control, you know, if if they took that over. And that's that's well, that exactly. Would, that's because yeah. the, the Taiwan Strait, which we go through, we call them FOM, Freedom of Navigation Exercises. Yeah. We send an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait, which is very close to China, yeah. and they're claiming everything, you know, a hundred miles south of where Taiwan is. So with Taiwan being there, it eliminates their ability to control anything because we say. You know, Taiwan Straits is that's there's two different countries here, and I'm going to drive my boat to it. So you've already got this big tension between Taiwan and China for for a book, and then you find out that it, that Australia has got the Chinese very much infiltrating, you know, their uh, way of life down there, and and you come up with this plot, and that plot is going to relate a little bit to this uh, to this clip we're going to play in just a moment from the opening of the book which involves a software issue. This, this, this plot line is built a little bit around what governments can do with software. And we know that China has been stealing our intellectual property, our artificial intelligence for years. They really have a mission to do that, right? They do. And they actually are pretty good at it. They're, 
they can, uh, there's a difference between China and America. We're a democracy and capitalist society. So inherently every country or every company inside of our country is competing. I don't want, you know, Google doesn't want Apple to get my technology. It's not like that in China. Every country, every company in China by default must provide all of their information to the government for them to utilize however they see fit. And so they have that going for them. And they also have Confucius Institutes and every, you know, uh, university here in America that's stealing any technology they can get. And I started looking at the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, which is built all over the world. It's a, the Lightning II is this wonderful aircraft that has huge cost overruns, but it's this miracle aircraft, but it's built all over the world. And uh, every one of those, the reason, you know, Lockheed Martin does that is because you can't cancel a project. You know, the United States Congress, it's built, I think, in 48 states in the United States alone. So if you're going to try to cancel that, you're going to have 48 senators saying, nope, need that money. Well, double that to around the world, and then you've got a bunch of people saying, no, you can't cancel it. We're going to build it. Uh, the downside of that is, is now it's open to infiltration from a myriad of different places. For instance, Turkey uh, bought the S-400 uh, anti-aircraft weapon system from Russia, which is a Russian anti-aircraft system, which could paint an F-35, which they're building. They have their own F-35 production facility. And we said, you can't, you can't buy the S-400 anti-aircraft system because it'll hurt. They'll give Russia data on the F-35. They bought it. And so we canceled them. They're no longer in the program. Um, but they, I found that there's a huge base in uh, uh, Australia that's building the F-35 facility. And I was like, okay, I'm using that. <laughs> well, yeah. And you mentioned Top Gun earlier. And I've got this Top Gun image because one of the things you that this facility in Australia's building in your book is the helmet uh, and the technology that goes in the helmet that controls the whole, uh, you know, imagine this visor that comes down. You can just sort of see everything on the visor as to what's going on in this aircraft. And it's all controlled by software, right? So right. if somebody gets in there and we're not giving anything away because this happens very early in the book, you know, if somebody gets in there and starts mucking with that particular software, they can make, the pilot believe that one thing's going on with that plane when in fact another is. And that might be a good way to set up this little clip we're going to play. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the clip is actually a real story. Uh, we lost an F-35. It was a Japanese F-35 built in Japan, uh, final production facility. At the time, there was only two. There was one in Fort Worth and one in Japan. Now there's only one. The Japanese said they don't want to build it anymore. This F-35 took off from uh, Japan and... Um, went into the ocean at 600 knots and nobody knows why it, it just, the pilot just crashed in the ocean and the, the uh, verbiage in the first chapter is literally the transcript from the tower to that pilot. This is what happened. Now, of course, in my book, I'll tell you why it happened. <laughs> they modified the software. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what you do. So that, that's a good setup. We're going to, uh, we're going to play the little clip. This is from the audiobook for American trader. It's the opening of the book. Uh, so listeners uh, enjoy this and we'll be right back. April 9th, 2019, Misawa, Japan. Jake Shu saw the afterburners kick in. The flight of four F-35 Lightning II aircraft leave the gravity of Earth and head into the night sky. It was but one of many flights leaving the airbase, a stream of lights bursting into the night one after the other. Some headed out over the Pacific Ocean, others over the Sea of Japan. But this one was special, special to him. The cold began to seep in under his trousers, an unrelenting contact from the iron park bench he was sitting on, as if it was asking him to leave. But he could not. He had a mission here, and he would see it through. 
The airbase in Misawa was about as far north in Japan as one could get on the main island, leaving him in the upper echelons of cold weather on the spit of land. But the April chill wasn't bad enough to drive him inside. He was too invested in a small bud in his ear. Connected to a scanner tuned to the open net air traffic control frequencies emanating from the tower behind him, he was listening intently. So much so, he actually had a bead of sweat on his brow in the 40-degree air. Like a scientist conducting an experiment in a controlled environment, he was unable to alter the outcome once it was started. But he wanted to see the results. All that remained was to watch and wait. Or in his case, listen. The initial contact from the aircraft sounded normal, which was not what he wanted to hear. He had a lot invested in this particular experiment, and if it didn't work, he would be the one paying the bill. The F-35 jet, known as the Lightning II, was the most advanced fighter aircraft ever envisioned. Capable of unimaginable things, from stealth penetration to combat control of synchronized drones, it was unstoppable. With construction on each airframe ongoing in more than 12 countries all over the world, it was the finest fighter aircraft ever to take to the skies, the ultimate killing machine. But it had an Achilles heel. Jake worked for a company called Gollum Solutions, a subcontractor of a subcontractor for BAE Systems, a common occurrence in the Byzantine world of military procurement. You'd be hard-pressed to find a military contractor who didn't take the profits first and then subcontract out. But in this case, the subcontracting company's name had a double meaning. It was derived from the riddle of the ring in J.R.R. Tolkien's novels. Built solely to gain the contract for the F-35, Gollum Solutions promised to solve the riddle through software, and in so doing, make the F-35 invisible. Just as the ring could do. As enticingly clever as the name was, what the owners never realized was that there were two sides to the ring, and they would pay a price for it. Okay, um, Brad, so we've got uh, this idea, which is really kind of a scary thought because we're becoming so dependent upon you know, software and artificial intelligence these days that it's so embedded in our military uh, infrastructure and, 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 the, and the equipment that we use and the weapons that we use that if someone can get in there and monkey with it, someone who's really smart with software, it can change the course of history, right? Yeah, and actually, artificial intelligence, uh, the Chinese are, they're not up to our level yet, but they're getting there. And uh, they'll probably surpass it. They, their goal is to do it by 2025. But we have an ethical dilemma in the United States. Everybody, there's people saying, hey, uh, artificial intelligence can help us win, not just you know fights against China, but fights against cancer, fights against everything else, traffic jams. Um, but the problem is, in the military at least, is, is where do you draw the line here? So we've said there will be no way that and we'll ever allow uh, artificial intelligence entity, whatever it is, plane, drone, to decide when to pull the trigger. It'll always be a human that's behind that trigger. Well, then you take that one step back and say, okay, well, artificial intelligence told you what the target was. Now you're going to believe what they say and you're going to pull the trigger. Is that not the same thing? And take it one step back from that. It's like artificial intelligence is now telling you there's indicators of a target. So there's a lot of ethical stuff with artificial intelligence that we're, we're all grappling with right now. Yeah. And that opening scene. So what happens is early on is that uh, this pilot who's flying this plane thinks that he's actually ascending when he's actually descending. 
And right. So he drives the plane right into the ocean. Yeah. Well, and it, the uh, and that's what they think happened with the Repo for real spatial awareness. I've done some missions overseas um, where you're going across a large expanse of water at night, and you cannot tell anything. I mean, you don't know what's up, what's down, what's anything. You have to trust your instruments. And his instruments in this case have been manipulated, and his instruments are saying you're going, you know, up, and he's actually going down. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Let's talk about the pace of the book. As I said, um, I really got into it. I was enjoying it. I mean, your books, and this one's uh, no exception, you know, they're running, they're fist fights, they're uh, knife fights, they're gunfights, they're impossible situations to get out of. I'm just curious, uh, Brad, when you're banging away at the keys on, and you're in these scenes, uh, you ever get a little worked up? Do you generally get pumping? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, it, it takes a while to plan out a, uh, uh, actual assault scene because you want it to be accurate. And, um, so, for instance, when Duncan gets saved on the streets and the nurses walk there, and there's three different points of view going on. You've got the Chinese, you've got Duncan, you've got Pike and Jennifer. And so you spend all this time mapping it out, how am I going to do this? Because one thing about a writer is I have to, I have to show the reader what's going to happen. But in showing the reader what's going to happen, I have to answer the question of why didn't they do a thousand different things? You have to eliminate why did they not you know, go left instead of right? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? And so, but once I get it mapped in my head and I start typing it, I can bang that out super quick. I did notice though, that you had a little fun, Brad. Um, you, you throw in some breathers every now and then, uh, not many, cause we're really moving in this book, but, uh, you say things like scientists did quirky things like doc Brown and back to the future or, uh, knuckles dressed like he was trying to audition for bachelor in paradise. And then there's this line, well, looks like we're pulling a Clark Griswold now on our own vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So is that sort of when you're thinking, okay, I've been beating up people enough. I got to take a little, little break here. And, that, you know. No, it's actually organic. I, it happens <laughs> every book. I, I'll have, a, you know, something that pops in my head and I'll just put it in there. That's great. Well, um, so, you know, you went from this, uh, this world that you lived in in the military to writing books uh, and, and you came up with this character, Pike Logan. I know you've probably been asked this a million times, but for those who haven't yet been introduced to your series, Pike Logan, uh, he's this, uh, person in, in all of these books that uh, is he's got a lot of skills, but he's also human. He does some things. Probably he's fallible. He does some things from time to time. Uh, he's a recurring character. How did you meet Pike Logan? Well, that he's actually kind of an amalgamation of people I served with. And so, I mean, people ask me all the time, are, you know, the books realistic. And at that one moment in time when he's in a gunfight or a fist fight or whatever it is, it is realistic. That's exactly what would happen. On the other hand, would he get in 20 gunfights? You know, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was trying to count up how many people, uh, you know, were interdicted uh, right. permanently in this book. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, there's certain things that if people ask me, if you really wrote a book about real life, I'd say it'd be 300 pages of me giving PowerPoint briefings to some <laughs> congressional council and then one page of action. Yeah. Um, but at yeah. the, that one page of action, it's realistic. And one of the things I've, I've always used to annoy me uh, still does is there's always this guy who um, if the bureaucrats would just get off his back, he could solve the day. If you just let me put this drill bit through this guy's knee, I'd solve the day. And that's not what combat's like. I mean, you go to combat and you're making the best decisions you can. You're making a literal decision on life and death. And uh, in the movies, it always works out. You know, the guy saves a day and he was right in real life. It doesn't. And sometimes you make a decision that is not a good decision. Even though you made it with the best intentions, you're going to live with that the rest of your life. 
And so I try to highlight that. And, and this, I, this specific book, I think it's Jennifer that kind of delves into it more than Pike does. Yeah. And I was just actually going to go there because Jennifer Cahill, uh, his wife, um, she's very capable. She's an operative herself. Uh, she's becoming uh, or is just as much a badass as Pike Logan. But uh, over the years in your books, she's kind of been his moral compass. But in yeah. this book, you know, is is Pike starting to rub off on her and he sees that and there's this sort of discussion back and forth. He's asking her, are you OK? And she's like, yeah, I'm OK. And then it's sort of talk about that a little bit because you can't explore yeah. that. In the book. Yeah, because I, I, when I originally started writing the books, the, the original book, One Rough Man, was just supposed to be a, a story of redemption. And people say, write what you know. If I'd have been a cop, I could have been a policeman. If I'd have been a priest, Jennifer would have been a nun. But in this case, I'm a special forces guy. And so that's what Pike became. And they had, uh, there's a yin and a yang. And you actually see it through uh, National Security Affairs every day. Um, John Stuart Mill had a thing called uh, uh, the greater good or utilitarianism. So the, the morality of an action is not based on the action itself. It's based on the outcome of the action. Uh, and then... Um, there's another thing called the categorical imperative that the, the action in and of itself is moral or non moral. And that's basically the yin and yang of it. Um, so if you talk about, uh, for instance, the 10 commandments, those are categorical imperatives. That's it. The military academies, uh, cadet will not lie, cheat or steal or tolerate those who do. It doesn't say you can steal a loaf of bread if you're feeding a hungry family. It says you won't steal. It's a categorical imperative. Uh, and if you look at that in our national discourse, it's, you know, we will never, ever, ever torture because that's a categorical imperative. But then as soon as you say, well, what if that guy knows where a nuclear bomb is in New York City? Oh, you can torture him then. Well, you just stepped into John Stuart Mill's greater good. The <laughs> outcome's better than the action. And so Jennifer was a categorical imperative person all along. And Pike was way greater good person, but he'd lost his moral compass in the very first book. And now they're kind of blending together. And it kind of scares Pike because he relies on her to say, this is not what we should be doing. And if she starts doing what he's doing, he doesn't think that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and we talked about where you went in this book, which you actually started in this book in Charleston, right? Which, which is where you live. Right. You know, you, you've got uh, Pike is, I suppose he's adopted this uh, young girl. And uh, the excuse is that he and uh, Jennifer are going to go to Australia for a little vacation to kind of give some separation there. And she's worried that, you know, wherever Pike goes, the bad man is going to find him. Right. Yeah. She's one of those characters. That's, so I, I write every book. I give 100% to the book. I mean, some writers, I guess, I didn't think I'd have one book published, much less 15. So I certainly don't have any kind of arc where, you know, in five books from now, I'm going to do this. Well, Daughter of War, two books ago, I brought Amina out, and uh, she was supposed to exit stage left at chapter four. I didn't know if I was going to kill her, she'd just escape or whatever. She wasn't going to be there. Well, by chapter four, I liked her too much. And so she ended up consuming the book to the point where, the book was actually called Shadow Strike up until publication. I said, you got to change it. It's now Daughter of War because Amina's taking it over. Well, I finished that book and it's, I was really pleased with it. But then I'm like, Amina exists. <laughs> now what do I do with her? I put her in this universe. I've got to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so for the past two books, I've been trying to figure out what am I going to do with Amina? And Amina's had a hard life. Her family was slaughtered in Syria and some in France. And she is worldly beyond her years, and she realizes that Pike is always going to find the bad man. He's coming. And mm. Pike's like, I'm just going on a vacation. Would you quit it? Yeah. Well, you know, they talk about writers. Uh, 
writing what you know and a source you're bringing all your collective experience uh, you retired i believe in, from the military in around 2010 or 11 is that right yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and then you sort of bring that in you get that first book out but then you continue to write and you're dealing with all these issues uh, but you're also staying up with current events so how close can you stay to what's going on in the world of uh, espionage and the military to keep up enough to make it realistic in your books well that's actually the hardest thing is trying to keep up with technology because it is a beast. I mean, every day there's something. I I spend every morning, about two hours in the morning, I read news feeds from all over the world, just from current events. And also I get hacker feeds and, you know, zero day vulnerabilities and all these kind of things that are coming in. Uh, and it's very hard to do. But the, the good part about it is when I first started writing, I knew all the inside baseball that was going on. And I couldn't put that in a book uh, because it used to be that uh, Department of Science and Technology at CIA, DST, they're the queue. They, you know, knew how to do all this neat stuff. Well, technology's overwhelmed them and now it's commercial off the shelf stuff. And so to keep up with it, I mean, I literally look at what's going on with criminals. <laughs> They're on the cutting edge of it. I'll give you an example. I had a, in no fortunate son, I was trying to find a phone and I didn't want to do something that I knew we could do because it's classified. And I read a story about uh, uh, these guys would, uh, when your, your phone goes into a Wi-Fi node, it knows at least most people, most people do not say, forget this network. So when I walk in my house, my phone immediately cooks, hooks to my Wi-Fi. Well, if you go to a Starbucks and you hook in for the first time, every time you go to that Starbucks, your phone will hook up to the Wi-Fi. So in New York City, a block away from a Starbucks, these criminals hovered a drone above the uh, intersection. And out of the 40 people crossing the street, five of them would have been in that Starbucks. And no five of those guys thought their phone thought that drone had a, uh, was the server for Starbucks. And it would attach to the drone and they downloaded all their information and stole their identity. And I saw that and I was like, that's how I'm going to find this guy's phone. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what Wi-Fi node he's been on before, which I can do. And then I'm going to fly a drone over until his phone hooks up to it. Good gosh. With all this stuff swirling around in real life and what you remember, it's, it might be hard sometimes to remember, okay, was that classified or is that something that's out in the world now? I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. Hey, a couple of writing life questions before we wrap up here. Um, you've written these 15 books now. You're working on another one. Um, in your acknowledgments, you, you make some comment about how this is the strangest year since you ever decided yeah. to give writing a try. Why did you decide to give writing a try? I actually, I, it was, a, um, actually just a bucket list idea of mine. I mean, I told my wife, actually, she was on my first date with my wife. I said, I was going to go to special forces and I was going to write a book and I was in college at the time. I hadn't done anything. And, uh, you know, I was trying to get her clothes off, but I mean, there was, <laughs> those were real things that I planned on doing. So I went to the military and went to special forces and served, you know, 22 years. And then uh, when I came to the Citadel, uh, I was teaching and, and it was like stepping off a bullet train and, and crawling. I had so much time on my hand. It was a nine to five job and it was very rewarding. But, you know, it's kind of rinse and repeat. Once I built the classes, you're teaching the same class three times a day. And I came home one day and said, I think I'm going to write a book. And my wife was like, whatever. <laughs> so I wrote it and then it sold, which was a uh kind of a uh, crux. I didn't know which way to go now. The dog had caught the car. I was supposed to, I couldn't publish the book because I was in classified units. Um, and if I was going to return to those units, there's no way I could publish a book. Uh, then my next assignment was two years uh, unaccompanied to Southwest Asia. My daughter was entering high school. Um, I came on the promotion list to Colonel and I had to make a decision. And so I decided to uh, turn down the promotion, retire from the army and give writing a try. 
Uh, you got a, a guy who turns down a promotion to become a writer. How about that? Yeah. It worked out well for you too. So after 15 books, and I ask this question sometimes, Brad, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that would help your younger writing self based upon all you've learned after writing these 15 books, hmm. what would it be? It would be, uh, if I looked at it now, I would say less is more. Uh, I tended to put too much stuff on the page when I first, I had to learn how to write. And so I had way too much verbiage. I think my first book, when I turned it in initially before it sold was 185,000 words and it went down obviously to like 120,000. So I, I tended to put too much. Um, I tended to explain to the reader too much. Here's what I want you to know. And I've come to find out that let the reader figure it out. They can figure it out. And I'm a reader. So, I mean, that's what uh, I, I looked internally to myself. My instructors were all authors I've read. That's all I used to do. I was a voracious reader. And so I would read a book instead of just reading for pleasure. I'd read and say, okay, how did he figure this out? And nine times out of 10, it's because he didn't figure it out. He let the reader figure it out. You don't need to tell the reader every five feet what's going on here. Let them figure it out. And sometimes that ends up biting me in the butt nowadays because I'll get, you know, some emails saying, I don't understand what happened here. And I'm like, well, maybe I should have put more in there. <laughs> no, no. then you just go on a podcast and explain it. That's all. Uh, <laughs> so, but you're right. I mean, I, I, I've mentioned this before. I'm a recovering trial lawyer, did a lot of trial work. And uh, the, the idea is you don't want to actually beat the jury over the head with it. You want the jury to come to the conclusion rather than you having to exactly tell them and, exactly that's a good way of putting it yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and, and so when you, you put enough in here you give them a little bit and you keep the action moving if they're curious they're going to go look it up that's another reason to go back to the book all right so pike logan as we wrap up here uh and before we head over to patreon to talk uh writing with you uh where's pike logan going next and what bad man awaits him <laughs> so I, well, I was doing research uh back before the pandemic i used to be able to do book research like i did in taiwan and australia but I was doing research for the insider threat, which is about ISIS against the Vatican. We were running around Rome and uh, I ran across this organization called the Knights of Malta. It's actually a much longer name, Knights of Malta, Rhodes, blah, 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 Jerusalem. And uh, they have diplomatic plates. They have their own passports. They have their own currency, their own stamps. They have a seat at the United Nations and they own no terrain. Strangest organization I've ever seen. Been around since the Crusades. Uh, Catholic Church, you know, it's been a factor of them. And I've been waiting to use them in a book forever. <laughs> so now I am. That sounds sort of Dan Brownish, uh, you know, Da Vinci code yeah, kind of thing. Right. You know? <laughs> Except that you're going to you're going to put Pike Logan in the middle of it and just run, right. run, run a truck through it. Yeah, I see that. All right. Well, look, listeners, uh, we're going to jump over now to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte podcast. Uh, you can join us there. We're going to do a little organic discussion, uh, writing with Brad Taylor. Uh, come join us. Uh, hey, Brad, listen, I want to thank you for uh, spending some time. Uh, on Charlotte's podcast and sharing about your, your book, an American trader, which will, uh, if you're not in good shape, you're going to be out of breath by the time you finish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. 
If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.